Thank you for downloading this podcast from Grace Church Manchester. To listen to more or to get involved with church life, visit www.gracechurchmanchester.net. Now, over the last three weeks at Grace Church, we've been looking at a series of talks called One Big Question. Uh, We asked our friends and our colleagues, if you could ask God one question, what would you ask him? And loads of really interesting answers came back. Now, today is not part of that series. It's Easter Sunday. We're following hard on the heels of it. But I want to start by turning that question around. Uh, So here, can you bring it up on the screen? If you could ask yourself one big question, what would it be? If you had one important, vital question that you could ask yourself, what would you ask? I want to show you a picture of Leo Tolstoy, author of War and Peace, among other things. I know what you're thinking. That is a serious beard. It's putting the rest of us to shame there. Leo Tolstoy answered that question like this. My question, that which at the age of 50 brought me to the verge of suicide was the simplest of questions lying in the soul of every man, a question without an answer to which one cannot live. It was this. What will come of what I'm doing today or tomorrow? What will come of my whole life? Why should I live? Why wish for anything or do anything? It can also be expressed thus. Is there any meaning in my life that the inevitable death awaiting me does not destroy. Is there any meaning in my life that the inevitable death awaiting me does not destroy? You might not put it quite like that, but that is the big question that faces every one of us. And Easter faces up to that question, and Easter answers that question. Because in light of our frail mortality, Easter changes everything. And in light of our hearts yearning for meaning and purpose, Easter changes everything. Because it says that Jesus Christ has defeated and destroyed death. So Easter changes everything. That's the point of this sermon that I've got here. I've got three simple points to share with you about Easter. What happened, why it happened, and what it means for us. What happened, why it happened, and what it means for us. So firstly, what happened? One Friday, they crucified Jesus of Nazareth. It was an ugly kind of a death. It was really a a grim torture. It was reserved for the lowest of the low, and uh, it was something that was a, a long, undignified death. It was a way of not only killing you, but destroying your dignity and your name. But on the Sunday... After he'd been killed and buried, on the Sunday, a number of women followers of Jesus went to his tomb and they found it empty, to their shock. And then they and the rest of his followers became convinced that Jesus had risen from the dead, literally and physically. Now let's just try and put ourselves in their shoes for a moment. Just imagine, these are people who've loved Jesus, they've followed him, some cases for three years and more, And here they are finding the body gone, the body of their cherished leader. One way of putting it is in a children's story by C.S. Lewis. He wrote a book called The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, which I'm sure you know. And uh, Lewis depicts Jesus as a great lion, a wonderful, beautiful lion who leads 
the people. And, uh, but he's killed. And now it says the sadness and shame and horror of Aslan's death so filled their minds that they hardly thought of anything else. As soon as the wood was silent, Susan and Lucy crept out into the open hilltop. The moon was getting low and thin clouds were passing across her. But still they could see the shape of the lion lying dead in his bonds. And down they both knelt in the wet grass and kissed his cold face and stroked his beautiful fur, what was left of it, and cried till they could cry no more. And then they looked at each other and held each other's hands for mere loneliness and cried again and then again were silent. That's something of how those women felt as they went to the tomb of Jesus. But he was gone. Now, the book of Luke, which Liz read to us from, has had a big emphasis on historical reliability and research and eyewitness testimony right from the very start of the book. Just back in chapter 23, if, you want, if you've got your Bible open there, page 1060, Luke has pointed out, with characteristic eye for detail, in verse 53, that a man asked for Jesus' body, and in verse 53, he took it down, wrapped it in linen cloth, and placed it in a tomb cut in the rock, one in which no one had yet been laid. This is a brand new tomb. You might think, well, that's um, kind of a detail. What's the point of saying it? Well, the point is this. These were tombs that were cut into the rocks, and they had shelves uh, in them for more than one body, so that the tomb could be used for a number of people over time. But this is a brand new tomb. Nobody else has been laid in there. In other words, there's no mistaking who it was that his body has gone. There's only one body in the tomb, and it was Jesus. There's no doubt about which body came out. Verses 53 to 55, the women saw the burial. They are eyewitnesses, and these same women come back. As soon as the Jewish law permits, they come back first thing early in the morning. Three named women in chapter 24, verse 10, it says, it lists their names. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, and Mary, the mother of James, and the others with them who told this to the apostles. Now, again, there's nothing random about the details. Luke is very careful with his, with his writing. He's writing history. In Jewish law, one witness was not enough to establish a case. Deuteronomy 19 says this, One witness is not enough to convict anyone accused of any crime or offense they may have committed. A matter must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. Now this requirement of two or three witnesses extended beyond the law courts into other areas of life where evidence needed to be certain and sure. And there are two, three named witnesses here and at least two witnesses, named, women witnesses named in Matthew and Mark as well. These women have been involved in Jesus' ministry for years, right from the start. Chapter 8, their names are listed. They were witnesses to the whole central part of the book. They're well known in the early Christian movement, and they retold their story many, many times. But notice the verbs, the kind of words that are used. The women saw. They saw. They are, this is eyewitness testimony. Now, if you were going to make up a story in the ancient world and just invent something, you would not have your main primary witnesses as women because women's testimony was not considered as valid as men's. So why do the New Testament writers insist on recording the names of these women? Because they were, in fact, full eyewitnesses to the death, the burial, 
and the empty tomb. They saw it. Now later on, Jesus appeared, came alongside two men. One of them we know is a man and a companion. Cleopas and his companion. And then later he appears to Peter. And then later on to the 11 disciples who were left after the death of Judas. And then some 15 or 20 years later, the Apostle Paul wrote a letter to a church in Greece. And he says there, there were more than 500 witnesses to the resurrected Jesus Christ. More than 500 people, most of whom were still alive. You could travel to meet them and check their story. Paul says, this is the testimony on which you've taken your stand. So these writers again and again are emphasizing this is something that really, really happened. Jesus really, literally, physically rose from the dead in a new body that was still like his old one. Now, what do you think about that? Of course, it seems absolutely unbelievable. But please note here, that is how they felt as well. Just look at their reactions, verses 5 to 8. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground. And the men said to them, why do you look for the living among the dead? He's not here, he is risen. They needed to be reminded, they needed to be told again. Jesus actually said he was going to rise from the dead, you know. And they're absolutely terrified. When they go back to the, uh, the guys... They tell them the story in verse 11. It says, They did not believe the women because their words seemed to them like nonsense. Even Jesus' closest followers thought it just was ridiculous. Verse 12, Peter, who's the kind of leader of the group, goes to the tomb to check out the story for himself. He goes in. He sees the linen cloths there. He sees there's no body. And it says, now bear in mind, this is a guy who's been with Jesus for years and years, and he's heard him multiple times predict that he's going to rise from the dead. Here's what it says in verse 12. He went away wondering to himself what had happened. <laughs> I mean, here's the, you kind of have a mental image of Homer Simpson here. You know, Jesus said he was going to rise from the dead. The tomb's empty and there's some linen cloths. I wonder what happened. <laughs> you know, But this is not evidence of Peter's stupidity. It's evidence of how unbelievable it was. Even Peter can't believe that Jesus has risen from the dead. And these two who were traveling on the road to Emmaus, giving their heartbroken story to the stranger, say, we had hoped that he was the one who would rescue Israel. And some of the women amazed us with their story. You see, they still don't conclude that Jesus is risen. Nobody's joining up the dots like that. Nobody expected Jesus to rise from the dead. That's why it takes them so long to get it. So you can't just dismiss these people as gullible peasants. They were staggered by what they saw. They needed proof. One man asked if he could put his hand in Jesus' wounds, they ask questions. This is not something that their belief system had really prepared them for. The most extensive recent historical survey by a man called N.T. Wright has concluded that the universal view of Israel's neighbors, the non-Jewish people, was that bodily resurrection was impossible. The Greeks and the Romans did not expect it. They thought that salvation meant being freed from the body. Why would you want to go back to it? It's a prison house. Now, Jewish people did believe that there would be a resurrection of the dead, but they thought it would happen once at the end of time 
to all people. Nobody expected that one person would be raised from the dead in the midst of history. Yet, that's what the New Testament says. That's what happened. Secondly, why did it happen? Why did it happen? Well, the answer is in chapter 24, verse 25 to 27. Have a look with me at it. This is Jesus speaking. He said to them, How foolish you are, and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. The point is, it had to happen. Jesus had to die and rise from the dead. And the whole Old Testament story points to it. Now this is the point of the second episode. story of two broken-hearted people. They've been following Jesus for some time. One of them is called Cleopas. The other is unnamed. Could be his wife or a male friend. And these two are walking down the road from Jerusalem to Emmaus. And they're just turning over the events of the last few days. They can't think about anything else. They're absolutely shocked. They're probably in trauma. They haven't slept for days. They can't make sense of it. How could Jesus, who promised so much, been killed by the Romans? And what had happened to his body? And then this man draws alongside them and starts walking with them and starts speaking to them. And it says in verse 16 that they, their eyes were kept from recognizing him. We don't know exactly how, but Luke is making a point here. The point is this. You can't see Jesus until you see him in the Bible. You can't see Jesus until you see him in the scriptures. So this mysterious man starts to ask some questions. Mysterious stranger. He's saying, what are you two talking about? And they're, they're really rather um, incredulous, maybe a bit sarcastic. Cleopas says, come on. Are you the only person in Jerusalem who doesn't know what has happened in these last few days? Where have you been? But Jesus draws the story out of them. And it turns out that they have given up hope. They've given up hope. And even though they've heard about the women and some others who went to the tomb to check the story out, they are going home. You notice that? They're leaving. They're leaving town. They're going home. There is nothing worth staying for in Jerusalem. These are like the football fans who are at a match and their team's getting beaten 6-0. And I've been at games like this where some people start leaving the stadium before the end of the match just to avoid the traffic. You know, there's no hope left. We don't want to see them score another goal against us. Just go home. They concluded that the tomb was empty, but the people did not see Jesus. These two are not going to stick around full of hope that Jesus might have risen from the dead. They think it's game over. They're absolutely defeated, confused. We had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. And notice also that even though they're talking to Jesus, who they know, their eyes are kept from recognizing him. You can't see Jesus until you see him in the scriptures. So Jesus tells them the story of the Bible. What I would give to have eavesdropped on that Bible study, to listen to the Lord Jesus himself open up the Old Testament and explain how it all related to him. But we haven't got a recording of it, sadly. However, we can have a fair guess at some of the texts that Jesus would have quoted because there are certain passages in the Old Testament that again and again he would talk about and his disciples, his followers later on would write and refer back to him. 
They tell a grand story, a story of creation, of God making a beautiful world and making it from nothing and making a furnished apartment in which the first humans were to live. And letting them live in a beautiful garden that was under his rule and his authority and giving them simple guidelines to live by. But they chose to turn their backs on God and to do it their own way. And so they sinned and they broke God's law. They broke his heart. There's a story then of God exiling them from that garden but of them being restored. And this restoration, this rescue plan that the Bible depicts doesn't come cheap. Genesis chapter 3 depicts a, a, a rescue that will come, and it's very kind of obscure. Let me read it out to you. Genesis 3 verse 15 says, um, uh, God, God curses the snake, and he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, but you will strike his heel. So even there in the first couple of few chapters of the Bible is a hint that there's going to be hope. Somebody will come and destroy the enemy of humanity. Someone will crush the serpent's head, but at the same time, the heel of that person will be bitten, and that's a fatal wound. Who is this person, this seed of the woman, who will come and crush our enemy? Genesis chapter 45, Joseph saves the world. He provides food for a whole nation in time of famine, and he rescues his family. But it only happens through his own suffering, being sold into slavery, losing his life so that others will live. Exodus chapter 12, freedom from Egypt, freedom from slavery. Deliverance from death only comes by the death of a firstborn son or being protected by the blood of a lamb. 2 Samuel chapter 7, God promises King David an heir in his line who will establish peace that will never end over the whole world. Who will be this king? Psalm 2, the nations rage and conspire against God, but God installs his king, a king who will rule the world in justice and peace. Who's that king going to be? Psalm 110, God Almighty says to a human king, sit at my right hand, the place of power, until I subdue all your enemies under your feet. But who is that referring to? Then Isaiah, the prophet, writes some songs, they're called the servant songs, about one who's going to restore the fortunes of the people, but only by taking their punishment on himself. Most famous one is in Isaiah chapter 53. This servant, it says, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement laid that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. We've turned every one of us to his own way. And the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. Who is that person? Isaiah didn't know. The whole storyline of the Bible is a story of a creation. Of humanity lost in the darkness and sin of being exiled in a world without God and of being gloriously restored through this king who's also a servant who suffers. How can those two messages both be true in one person? This is the story that Jesus Christ explained to those two people on the road to Emmaus. And as they heard it, it says their hearts burned within them. 
Their hearts burned within them. Something was warm in there when they finally began to realize how it all fits together. And then when they sat at the table with Jesus and he broke the bread and gave it to them, finally they realized who he is. It's really him risen from the dead. That's why it happened. That's why he rose from the dead. And finally, thirdly, what it means. What the resurrection means. I want to address um, two groups of people in the room here today. Uh, Skeptics. Skeptical people and Christians. I want to appeal to the skeptics to reason and to the Christians to remember. So firstly, skeptical people, I'm sure there's a good number. If you're in this room as a skeptical person, um, you might be here because you've been forced to come by your family member or friend. So if it's, that's you, then I'll make this as painless as possible. But you might also be here because you are attracted to certain aspects of Christian teaching. There are some parts of it, of, of the Bible or of Jesus' teaching, that you're attracted to, but you just can't swallow the whole thing. Well, I'm glad you're here today because today you've hit the bedrock. Uh, the resurrection is the foundation upon which everything else stands. What this means is that if Jesus rose from the dead, really and truly, we have to accept everything he said. If Jesus rose from the dead, really and truly, we have to accept everything he said because it means he's God in the flesh ruling our world. But if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then why worry about anything he said? He's just another human teacher. You see, the issue on which everything hangs is not whether you like this bit or that bit of Jesus' teaching, but whether he really rose from the dead or not. It's that fundamental. And I do sympathize with the skeptical person who says, I just can't possibly believe in somebody rising from the dead. I I sympathize with you. But let me ask you to reason. Will you take an honest look at the evidence? Now, there are two pieces of hard data that nobody can deny. Everyone has to agree on this. The first is the existence of the New Testament texts. You have in your, your hands a book, the last 27 books of it, uh, called the New Testament, which was written within a few decades, for the most part, of when Jesus walked the earth. You have that hard evidence. Those texts were written. So you have to account for them somehow. And the second thing you have to account for is the existence of the Christian church. In the year 33, 35 AD, there were a handful of followers of Jesus in the world. They were a despised minority in the Roman Empire. They were actually uh, going to be persecuted later on for their beliefs because what they believed was so implausible and so against the power structures of their day. Yet, within 300 years, they became the dominant religion in the Roman Empire. You have to account for that. You've got the New Testament, you've got the growth of the Christian church. So how, what really happened in Jerusalem on that Easter Sunday to account for that, that data? Peter Kraft is a professor of philosophy at Boston College. He's the author or editor of 75 books. Kraft has summarized uh, the theories that people have come up with about the resurrection of Jesus. He says there are five possible theories. Uh, the swoon theory, that Jesus swooned and wasn't really dead, but he then later revived. The hallucination theory, that his followers 
had a mass hallucination and thought they saw the risen Jesus, but in fact they were just hallucinating. The myth theory, that they created a myth, wrote it up in books, and um, they didn't really believe it, but they thought it was an inspiring story, and then later on everybody sort of believed it was true. The conspiracy theory, that his disciples were really out to deceive people, or Christianity. There's the five. Swoon, hallucination, myth, conspiracy, or Christianity. Most people end up in one of those five places. Kraft, in an article on his website, refutes the swoon theory with nine arguments, the hallucination theory with 13 arguments, the myth theory with six arguments, and the conspiracy theory with seven arguments. Now, you might be relieved to know we don't have time this morning to look at those 35 arguments. If only we did. Let me just say this. Every possible theory has been weighed carefully. All your doubts, somebody else has doubted before. There was a journalist called Albert Henry Ross. He set out to disprove the resurrection once for all. It's the first part of the last century. By the time his research was concluded, he was astonished to find that he believed Jesus had risen from the dead. So he wrote the book he never thought he would write. It was called Who Moved the Stone? He wrote it under a pseudonym, Frank Morrison, still in print more than 80 years later. Dr. Kraft says, what if you reasoned all this through and then you concluded that the only plausible explanation is that Jesus Christ really rose from the dead? What fate awaits you? The answer is not obscure. Traditional Christianity awaits you, complete with adoration of Christ as God, obedience to Christ as Lord, dependence on Christ as Savior, humble confession of sin, and a serious effort to live Christ's life of self-sacrifice, detachment from the world, righteousness, holiness, and purity. He says, the historical evidence is massive enough to convince the open-minded inquirer Compared to any other historical event, the resurrection has eminently credible evidence behind it. To disbelieve it, you must deliberately make an exception to the rules that you use everywhere else in history. Now, why would you want to do that? So ask yourself that question if you dare, and take an honest look into your heart before you answer. So I want to dare you something today, skeptics. I want to dare you to ask yourself that question. Could it be true? Jesus actually rose from the dead. And if you would feel that you could do that in the company of a few friends, we've got a group of people running uh, something called an Explore course here at the church. Uh, It's week beginning the 11th of April. It'll run for five weeks. It's an evening with a meal. And they'll have chance in a relaxed environment to work through some of the claims of Jesus. We also have a few things actually on this lovely resource table with some flowers there. These are all free. There's a book, a little book called The Case for Easter, another journalist investigating the evidence for the resurrection. Uh, If you're not into reading, there's a movie called Believable, an 18-minute movie looking at some of the evidence in a film presentation, a bit like a TED Talk. And for the kids, this is like I've got a market stall, isn't isn't it? Kids, we've got absolutely bonkers Easter So help yourself to some of those resources or come and chat to me if you'd like to uh, take a course. But let me dare you again. Ask the question, what have you got to lose? Okay, Christians. 
Um, I am asking you to reason as well, but actually more than that, to remember. To remember, if you're a Christian here today, then your faith is resurrection faith. This is what you first believed, and on this you took your stand. Remember Paul's words to the Corinthians. Brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved, if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. So Christians here, what does this mean for you today? If Jesus rose from the dead, then he is now Lord of all. He's Lord of everything. If Jesus rose from the dead, then his teaching on sexuality is true and authoritative, and you need to live your life in accordance with it. If Jesus rose from the dead, his teaching on compassion for the poor and being merciful and generous with your resources is true, and you need to do that. Open your heart, your home, and your wallet to the needy. If Jesus rose from the dead, then his teaching on forgiveness is true. You've got to lay down that grudge. Bury the hatchet. Put it away. If Jesus rose from the dead, his teaching on seeking his kingdom and righteousness more than anything else is true, and you need to make that your heart's priority. And if Jesus rose from the dead, then listen, you have nothing left to fear. You have nothing left to fear in life or in death. Yet how many of us are bound by fear? We live in fear. And you'll think, well, I don't think that's really me. Really? Let me rephrase it. Are you ruled by anxiety? Are you ruled by anxiety? Friends, that is fear. So what do you fear that is bigger than Jesus Christ? What could happen to you that is worse than death? But he's already defeated death. He didn't just defy it. He didn't just deny it. He destroyed it. Where, O oh death, is your victory? Where, O oh death, is your sting? Thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord, Jesus Christ. We can be victorious even through death because we too can live again because of his life. So Christian friends, are you walking today, are you, are you living in the light of Jesus' victory? Or are you a slave again to fear? Have you allowed yourself to be taken captive by your fears, your anxiety? Hebrews 2 says this, Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in, his, in their humanity, so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. So why this fear and unbelief, friends? What are you afraid of that is bigger than Jesus Christ? What are you afraid of? Christians sometimes talk about taking their burdens to the foot of the cross. I want to correct that a bit today. You take your sins to the foot of the cross, yes, but you take your fears to the empty tomb. Sit in there for a while, look at the linen cloths, and think about what Jesus has overcome. Go and sit at the table with Cleopas and that other person as they hear Jesus talking and they finally realize he's risen from the dead. He is not here. He has risen. And so we have nothing else to fear. And we've got to rub that into our hearts because we're so very fearful. Haven't we? So let me close now by telling you about a man who had a lot to fear but found that Jesus was big enough to deal with all his fears. We've got a picture of him coming up. 
Edward Coombs was a vicar in the Oxfordshire town of Banbury. He was known as a gentle vicar and he served his church faithfully for 15 years. He was married, three young children, uh, the youngest of whom was six years old. And one day he felt ill and went to the doctors and they discovered that he had a rare form of cancer. He was diagnosed six months before he died. He was 49 when he passed away. Now that's not a lot of time, is it? Six months. It's not a lot of time to prepare for death. Edward and his wife wrote regular bulletins and emails and sent photos to keep their friends and their church family up to date with what was going on. They shared their struggles openly. They didn't um, sugarcoat them. They shared particularly the thought of leaving young children behind. A friend of mine is a member of that church, and here's what he said. The letters always ended in praise and were full of hope. I realized that in the face of absolute certainty of imminent death, this guy is not faking it. He's not faking it. He had a hope that simply didn't make sense. People in the hospital couldn't believe it. We all saw how it cashed out in his life. We saw constant hope. And his last words were these. Jesus is everything. Jesus is everything. And my friend actually said that Edward Coombe's finest sermon was his death. His death was his finest sermon. Last Sunday, at that little church in Banbury, they sang this song, I will sing the wondrous story. It contains this verse. He will keep me till the river rolls its waters at my feet. Then he'll bear me safely over, all my joys in him complete. Yes, I'll sing the wondrous story of the Christ who died for me. Sing it with the saints in glory, gathered by the crystal sea. Great to have you here with us today. I'm going to pray, and while I'm praying, the musicians will come out. And I want to pray for you, that you will come to know this Jesus, who gives such hope in the face of fear and death. Would you pray with me? Why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee. Heavenly Father, what can we say? We, we crawl between heaven and earth. Our lives are so short and we think we're so important. And yet you have such regard for us. You even went to the lengths of sending your son Jesus to come and live the kind of life we should have lived and die the death that we deserved. And he has risen to life for our justification. Father, we thank you for him. And I pray now that this resurrection of Jesus would come home to us all more and more in reality today and in the days to come. And especially for those here who are skeptical and are still grappling with questions of faith, would you help them and draw them into yourself and convince them in their hearts. May their hearts even now burn within them as they hear the wondrous story. And we pray these things in his name and for his glory. Amen. Thank you for downloading this podcast from Grace Church Manchester. To listen to more, 
or to get involved with church life, visit www.gracechurchmanchester.net.